Welcome to Rich Conversations. Today, Paul LeCrone returns to the show. Paul's been on uh, the show a few different times and always great conversation. I love talking to Paul because we have very similar and uh, great taste in reading. And, uh, you know, we're just knowledge seekers and we love learning more about the world and, and getting better every day. It's cool with Paul to see him. He's especially on Twitter. He's a good follower, Paul underscore LeCrone. And it's just cool to see him work hard to to do what he's doing. And uh, he's finding more and more success with it. It's, it's awesome to see. So on this episode, we talk about the creator economy, music, and uh, of course, you know, books, philosophers, all, all that type of stuff. So uh, great episode, very interesting. And uh, let's begin. All right. So we have Paula Crone back on the show. Welcome back to Rich Conversations. Yeah, of course. Rich, thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and to catch up. Uh, yeah. So you were on episode 37, 42, 47, and 55. Uh, that many? And, uh, Wait, really? I didn't know it was that many episodes. Seriously? Yeah. Yeah. I had no, I, I thought I've only been on like twice. Okay. We've, uh, we've talked about a number of different things. It was a while ago. This was like yeah. back in 20 and, uh, was, back in 2020 yeah. Yeah. and, uh, which seems like either like yesterday or like 10 years ago. And we talked about brave new world, uh, Walden. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about space exploration, uh, with pale blue dot. And then, uh, yeah. just like psychology and the importance of it, understanding oneself and how that's uh, crucial in developing uh, an intentional life. Today's going to be uh, a little bit more free-flowing, and, and uh, I'm glad you're here. Paul is, Paul is uh, I really enjoy Paul. Of all the people I follow on Twitter, Paul brings me a lot of joy when I see him on my, my Twitter feed. Uh, I don't use Twitter as much as, like, say, Instagram, but I really enjoy Paul because he... He's so himself on Twitter, and I just appreciate how he weaves his personality into all the things that he does. He's doing a lot of cool things, and uh, I thought it'd be great to have you back on. Uh, yeah, thank you. That I bring you joy on Twitter, and that I'm myself on Twitter is kind of funny to me because a lot of what I do is just like a rant about things that I am not a fan of or just like poking at myself and all of my terrible habits like what i wrote about this morning about pseudo productivity that it brings you joy i think is really cool to hear and it's a lot of it is just like my rebellious attitude towards saying the same things that everybody else is saying and seeing that as an example of what creativity isn't i don't want to just regurgitate what everybody else is saying but at the same time I think that that's also kind of what creativity is about. It's about like, there's no such thing as original originality. It's like 99.9% .9 of the stuff that comes out of my mouth isn't original. It's just, it's just like my take on things, my perspective yeah. on things. That's very valuable, I think, but that's, yeah. thank you for that. Appreciate that a lot. That's why it helps to be honest in yeah. what you're doing and, uh, kind of know yourself rather than trying to say the same things as everybody else while 
trying to appear like everybody else at the same time. It just like doesn't work effectively. Yeah. Trying to appease, you know? yeah, appease and appeal to, to other people. Like I, I want to make sure that what I'm putting out into the world is valuable for people and not just myself. Like I don't want to be too self-indulgent and just write and create things that simply entertain me. I think that's kind of narcissistic. And so I, like I do care deeply about providing value for people and meaningful experiences and not wasting people's time when they come to my content on social media. And so if I'm going to make a video or a blog post, part of it is for me, but then there's another part that's for, I guess, like a vague version of, of like you in general, like the audience. Right. Yeah. But if it's entirely for me, I think that's very self-indulgent. And if it's, if I'm completely catering to other people, then I feel like I'm just trying to latch on to what's popular and trendy. I don't know what the perfect ratio or balance is, but there is a balance, I think. Yeah. Why don't you describe for listeners real quick uh, all the things that you're working on and doing? Well, I'm working on trying not to work on too many things at once. <laughs> Uh, because there are many things that interest me and there's actually a lot of things that don't interest me um, primarily. Well, I think there's also benefit to throwing a lot at yourself and trying to be as prolific as you can. 2020 for me was a year of experimentation. I was trying many different projects, most of which were crap and failed and like whatever. And by failure, by failed, I mean, they just didn't amount to anything that was valuable for me long term. But I don't think having a podcast that only has five listeners is necessarily a failure, by the way. I think that if you're inspiring even five people or 10 people, that I think is a reasonable amount of success because you've changed five people's perceptions and thinking. And like that's cool. That's great. Mm -hmm. So what I'm working on now to answer your question is I just launched a course on video editing uh, slash video storytelling. Uh, called Video Storytelling Class. And that was the hardest thing that I ever made. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. I think it's great. I think it's uh, it's a self-paced course to teach people how to just make awesome videos and to stretch themselves creatively and to think about video in a way that you don't normally think about with video. Like the first thing I teach is, the second thing I teach is to think about music, the music choice in your video trailer to promote mm. whatever it is you're making. And so that I just finished up. And that was like my big project of the year, I guess. And that was a lot of fun. And now I'm working on kind of marketing that and promoting that. And the, I've got the community around it. I'm also just kind of working on, I mean, I'm still writing every day and I am reading what I'm writing every day. Uh, I used to do that. I haven't been reading my stuff out loud on YouTube recently. So I've got a YouTube channel and I've got like videos of myself talking to my camera and I've got videos of little uh, stick figure versions of me ranting about things in culture today here in America. It's more political. And then I've got like another podcast with my buddy, Christian Watson. It's like a cultural political commentary podcast. And what else? I, um, I don't know. I should have my virtual assistant, AKA me keep track of all the things that I'm doing and that I'm losing track of what I'm doing. I think is a healthy sign that I'm actually getting better at not focusing on too many things at once. So I'm trying to get better at being prolific without distracting myself with um, kind of pseudo productive moments in my life where I don't realize the consequences of what I'm doing in the long term. Like, am I, am I working on this because I'm afraid of being bored or am I working on this because it's actually going to shape my future in a positive way? And so because I am high 
in creativity or high in openness, trade psychological openness on like the big five personality scale, it is very easy for me to wake up one day and be like, I'm going to work on something completely different than what I was working on yesterday. Even though the thing that I was working on yesterday was like a freelance project that I was paid for. And it's like, no, 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 you should focus on that thing you were doing yesterday because that's actually much more important to you right now. Hold off on the other inspiration that you have until tomorrow or the next day. But then I think, oh, well, what if I'm not inspired as I am today? <laughs> and so that's yeah. just the craziness that goes on in my head. And focusing on what is essential to me, I think, is the most important meta skill that I could practice. Yeah. And then on top of all these things you're working on, it looks like you've been working on that mustache for a while, too. You're damn right. I have. That is the most <laughs> important thing to me right now. Yeah. 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 About to join the fire academy <laughs> as well. Both my brothers are paramedic firefighters, and I'm the one who decided not to do that because I'm too much of a, a wuss to go jump into burning buildings and jump out of helicopters, which is what they do. Something I really appreciate and respect about Paul is I've kind of seen sort of where you started and where you are now and the growth that's happened. And you mentioned experimentation in 2020. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like I've kind of seen your journey and all the things that you've been doing. And it's cool to see someone who understands this fundamental thing, which I, th I think you do, that in the 21st century, the tools available at our fingertips are incredibly powerful and we haven't had this opportunity in like human existence and there's this possibility of designing the life that you want to live you can do that but that means you have to figure out how you're going to do it yeah and it yeah. seems like you've just you understood that main idea and you've just been trying and trying and putting a lot of work towards discovering what that is for you. Mm -hmm. And when you say failures, the failures, it's cool to see people that aren't afraid to start because that's, that's the thing you have to do in order to uh, live a happier life, a more fulfilling life is you have to start on these basic things. And um, understanding that when you start, you're not going to be successful all the time. But the failures are just learning opportunities. You just keep growing and growing, getting better was, and better. I thought uh, I wanted to do a podcast where you'd oatmeal every morning and talk about whatever. And it was called Morning Oatmeal. And I was I was get, I would get on camera and I would make myself a bowl of oatmeal. And then I would just talk about like a book I'm reading. And I stopped doing that because I thought it was, you know, I don't know. It was kind of a fun thing. And like there's 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 value to entertainment in that manner, but it's like I just stopped doing it because I thought it was ridiculous. <laughs> but at the same time, I would encourage people, I would dare them to be ridiculous and I would dare them to have like fun in the moment ideas. And then you realize, wait, that was kind of a dumb idea. We're so afraid of being seen as normal, I think. Now, it depends on who you are, of course. You know, it's just, if you're high in creativity, please just be as ridiculous and off the rails as you want. Like go start a fucking podcast. Sorry if I can't curse on this, I forget. If you know, with oatmeal, bowl of oatmeal and talk every morning about that. Um, yeah, well, we don't really know what we want, I think, until we start trying these things out yeah. in public. And when I, when you say like, you're very good at knowing what you want, I think, well, I'm a lot better now 
and knowing what I want because I've gone through so many iterations in this last year of thinking, oh, this is what I meant to do. I've met, this is what I'm here to do. I'm here to do yeah. a podcast with oatmeal or I'm here to do this like silly thing. And that wasn't what I was meant to do. And now I'm a lot closer to you keep getting this closer. life that I'm living where I feel like this is what I am supposed to be doing. I should be teaching, I should be like making a course on video editing and teaching people how to think about video and how to tell stories in an interesting manner and inspire people to be more creative and kind of guide people in that direction. And I could have only gotten to that point if I had those iterations, those yeah. failures. And I only call them failures, not because they didn't have any views, but because I realized I don't want to do this. <laughs> like, that's it. You know, I just didn't want to do it anymore. So I wanted and it, to do it something It seems else. like you, there's yeah. kind of like a, um, you have a mindset where you don't get too attached to your ideas. You can't you put them out and then you yeah. think to yourself, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to move on rather than trying yeah. to like get down on yourself for like this one particular, you know, you just, yeah. you got to move forward. Nobody remembers the oatmeal podcast except me. And <laughs> I torture myself over it all the time. <laughs> it's like, well, what the fuck was that? <laughs> well, the only person who knows all of your failures is you yeah. like nobody's there's not a single person alive who's thinking man that paul guy he is a fucking failure for having started those eight projects that went nowhere that guy is a loser the only person who might ever think that for two seconds is me and yeah. like if it's me i can handle it because it's not like a yeah. hundred people are thinking that but that's the fear of being ridiculous of just being of putting yourself out there and just start like picking pick anything just start something and then you will you know it'll force you to get better at something doing yeah. these podcasts has forced me to get better at speaking contemporaneously and speaking spontaneously and marketing of the podcast and making clips the course thing that i did forced me to really take my skills as a video editor into a wild direction because i had to teach and i had to edit the videos at the same time so forcing yourself into a goal or into a creative pursuit is going to teach you a skill or set of skills. But, and then nothing is ever really a failure because now you have that experience practicing those skills. Yeah. Like the copywriting that I did for my sales page, like I'm not a copywriter and you could say, oh, it's a failure because you only had so many students. Well, I'm a lot better at writing copy than I was six months ago because I wrote that thing. Yeah. And that's an experience and that's very useful. What do you think about that idea of learning through doing? Instead of like in the classroom where you're taking yeah. notes, oh, the professor said this, I'm going to write it down. Oh, now I got to yeah. memorize it for the test. What about learning through doing? What do you What do you think about that? Learning through doing, yeah, I think it's a mixture of learning through doing and then also learning through study so i can give you an example so i learned through doing by designing my course and selling it and putting in the work of actually designing the videos and writing the copy i also learned by studying by looking at somebody else in my orbit i looked at his course which he had a very okay. successful launch over and his was a lot better than the beta version of the course that i put out about four months ago two and a half months ago and i thought wow his work is a lot better than mine i'm going to study why that is which elements did he excel at that I didn't excel mm. at? And so I studied that and then I was like, okay, well, I can't just theorize about this all day. I have to go and apply what I've learned yeah. in my own way. And so I think it's a mixture of both. 
it's very easy for us to think like, you know, everything should be learned by doing. And I'm a big fan of that learning by action and by, by practicing because practice is incredibly, incredibly important because talent without practice is, I think, kind of useless. Practice really matures the talent that you have into something that's much more sophisticated and robust and anti-fragile. So if you have the practice in there, it's really useful. But don't neglect the power of not being jealous at somebody else's success. If they're successful in your field, it's very easy to become jealous of that and think, well, oh, they're just much more talented than I am or I'll never amount to that. Their success is like you couldn't have a better example of what you should probably be doing a little bit differently. It's almost like yeah, a cheap. Yeah, that's great. Like, well, they're yeah. successful. They're just putting it out into the wild for you to study and to learn from. It's out there for you to neglect that is to just be completely ignorant or arrogant or both. Yeah. Uh, so you're in San Diego. Yeah. What? What's it like in the summer, San Diego? Uh, it's hot right now. It's actually cloudy. It rained last night. Did it really? Yeah. Yeah. That a that's a rare thing. It is a rare Southwest. thing in San Diego to rain on a July night. Yeah, it is. It's been humid, which is also weird for California, for San Diego at least. Uh, yeah, traditionally it is hot. It is clear. It is beautiful. It's gorgeous. And it is the only reason why the cost of living should be the way it is because the weather is so nice. <laughs> It's like the most distracting thing in my life is the weather here in California. I don't know how I'm supposed to be. I don't know how you live out there, Paul. Yeah, well, I know. It just seems it's so, so nice distracting. Out. I know. Like, well, how am I supposed to be productive all day with the weather the way it is? Yeah, yeah I don't get it. Um, it's really nice. <laughs> like, I don't know what else to say about that. Do you, I, I don't you... know how anybody gets anything done here. It's so nice. So then do you parlay the nice weather into walks and enjoy nature and thinking that inspires your writing and, and production? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every morning I go on a walk without my phone. It's the one of my favorite parts of the day. I do it in the evening too. I'll just go and walk, put the phone away and go on a walk. Or on a weekend, I'll leave technology behind. Usually do this on a Sunday, sometimes a Saturday. Sunday's nice because it's like the day where it's like the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to be working. I kind of pretend that that still applies. And then I'll just go walk on the beach and that will make me feel incredibly grateful. I don't know. There might, there might be some correlation between time not spent on Twitter and how grateful you are for life. And the more you spend time outdoors, the more grateful you are to be alive. And I just, I like people watching. I like just kind of walking around and seeing all of the people just living life. You're people watching. What, yeah, people What watch. do you think is the best place to people watch in your experiences, not just in San Diego, but- I'm the worst person anyway. to ask that because I've never been outside of America. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what situations? Are you at airports? Are you at- I'm Parks. not at airports, that's for sure. I'm not going- <laughs> I like going to air, the San Diego airport, sit down on a chair and like just watch people go. I don't know who does that. The beach probably, just okay. anywhere where there's people. Anywhere, well, it's also 2021, so we can go outside again and watch people like yeah. not wearing masks. That was kind of creepy for a while. It was a very impersonal thing to just be around crowds of people <clears throat> wearing masks. And here in California, at least not in Los Angeles, uh, here in San Diego, 
nobody's wearing a mask at this point. So it feels good to see people's smiling faces again. And the beach, really, I think. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky to live so close to such a gorgeous area to be walking down the beach and to see people just living life. I think it's, um, it just puts you in this, this zone, this, this grateful zone. Like, yeah, I was doing it. I was at the beach not too long ago and I was just thinking, feels like my life is just getting started, which is a complete contrast to what I normally think when I'm online. And it's like, oh, it feels like my life is ending. <laughs> it's like, really? yeah, it's like, oh God, I have all these things to worry about and to panic about. And like, how am I going to make money? And what am I going to eat tomorrow? And all these useful things to think about. But when I'm outside and I'm not around technology, I tend to think more spiritually, I suppose, more high level, more woo woo, I guess, more just grateful for just being alive and also just grateful for the problems that I do have, the quality of the problems that I do have. It's like, oh, that I can actually consider where my money's going to come from and what I'm going to do for, for food next week is, I think, a blessing because that's a good problem to have to actually think, well, at least I have the problem of considering where my food is going to come from. At least I'm able to think that, you know, that's something to be grateful for because not everybody has that kind of problem in their life because they, they might not even be able to conceive of like, well, oh, am I going to have enough money to spend at the grocery store? Well, at least I can spend money at a grocery store. Like that's mm. a good thing to consider. And so I just think about those things when I'm out and about watching people watching just life go by. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You mentioned uh, pseudo productivity. Can you elaborate yeah. on that? Pseudo productivity. I'm glad you brought that up. Well, we're talking about the quiet moments in life. We're talking about filling up gaps in our lives. Uh, so pseudo productivity to me is this idea that I'm doing something only because I'm afraid of not being like, I'm afraid of boredom. Am I doing what I'm doing right mm. now? Because I want to look to the boss, AKA me, like I'm being productive. Oh, the boss is here. Look productive. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Or, or am I doing something because it's actually going to push the needle forward in my life? Is it yeah. going to bring me financial or spiritual slash psychological value? two, three, four, five years from now, or am I just mm. tweeting because that's how you build an audience and I need to put more podcast clips out there and churn out more content mm -hmm. and look productive or do something that's just kind of vain and hollow. Though it's a tricky thing when it comes to social media because I am relying on Twitter to find work and to find freelance gigs and to promote my work. And I'm a very big advocate of self-promotion, but I am making it a goal of mine to be more aware of what is pseudo productivity and what is actually leading me to a better future. Am I just hurrying? Am I hustling and hurrying? Or am I actually focusing on something that has benefit to my future self? That I would call pseudo productivity, stuff that feels productive, but when you're finished with it, it kind of leaves you with an icky feeling like, was that really productive? Or was I just moving fingers across the keyboard because that's like productive. Yeah. So you have this interesting relationship with time where you're trying to balance your long-term aspirations and then in the moment, what you should be doing yeah. to achieve those. 
Yeah, that's a good point to bring up your long term aspirations. Like, I think, because when you set when you set like a goal, like, let's say your goal is to make like, I don't know, X amount of money per month. And then like, oh, God, I got to work to that goal. I got to like do something. And then like just yeah. the whole idea, oh, I got to do something leads you to doing things that you probably shouldn't be doing. Ah, uh, yeah. What is your what does your balance look like? Like what? What things do you do that you feel like it's not work, but it helps you overall? Other things that you consume art-wise, or there things that you do besides walks that that don't seem like their work, but they actually help your work? That's a good question. The first thing that I came up with was food, like making a good meal, eating right. What are some of your favorite foods? I love this question. I, I love that you're not asking me like what my favorite productivity tool is, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's not my style. Good, because I, I love these kinds of questions. My favorite food in the world is Japanese food. By bar, Japanese really? food, curry, sushi. I am extremely adventurous with my food. Uh, you know, maybe one day I'll just quit all of this and try to become like Anthony Bourdain and like yeah. travel the world, which just to me is just going to Japan. I'm a big Japanophile. I love like weird fish and weird flavors of food, man. Like I love raw fish that grosses everybody out, like fish eggs and fish roe and masago and weird like eel and squid and unagi and those sorts of things i could eat that all day that's my luxury like when you talk yeah. about having a yacht i don't want a yacht i don't see the appeal of owning a yacht but my my yacht is like extremely expensive fish and sake and delicious weird food that's that's my yacht that's my material self-indulgent hedonistic luxury is is just fish and seafood in, indulging in that uh, my favorite food. Yeah. Japanese. Is there a great seafood scene in San Diego? There is amazing seafood in San Diego. Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. Oh yeah. All over the place. There's a seaside market, which is right up on the Pacific beach, Pacific ocean. It's right up on the shore. There's convoy district, which is full of delicious Japanese food and Korean food. It's this big, uh, section of San Diego there. Yeah. We've got great, uh, seafood. Oh yeah. That's my favorite. But yeah, when it comes down to things that aren't productive, that actually help me. It's um, reading good art, good music, listening to good music, watching good film and reading and inspiring myself with the work of other artists, consuming content in a way helps with the uh, creative inspiration. So I know you're a big fan of Radiohead and yeah, yeah. Arcade Fire. I am. Can you share with me why you love their music? Uh, Radiohead is the greatest band of all time. <laughs> I'll say that right now. And so is Arcade Fire. Radiohead is a conundrum to me. I don't understand how they work. I don't know if they're making music for themselves or for their audience or what, because with every album they put out, they sound completely different than their last album. Arcade Fire sort of does this as well. And so does a third band that I really like called Animal Collective. But they're always redefining their sound with every record. But at the same time, it's like very them like radiohead i'll give you an example like 
OK Computer and Kid A are two very different albums. OK Computer, for those who don't know, is one of their most favorite records. It's very rock. It's very like traditional rock sound, but it's very Radiohead. Kid A, on the other hand, is very electronic. It uses a lot of synthesizers and electronic drum beats, but it's also very Radiohead. So there's like these underlying motifs or kind of chords that they play around with that sound very Radiohead, but the instrumentation is different and the instrumentation changes the presentation of the music. So therefore it sounds a lot different than the last record, but that's their attempt to redefine their sound while still sounding like themselves. Like, oh, this doesn't sound like a Radiohead record at all. Like, what is this? People still like Radiohead because they still sound like Radiohead, even though their instrumentation is different. Is that just, just because, do you think that's because it's them making the music. So it's yeah. it's going through their brains, their processing and creation, right? Yeah, it is. And I think that's incredibly inspiring. And I think that's what a lot of, I think that's what creatives should do is to try to like play around with the instrumentation of the tools that they use. And saying, oh, well, I, I, I can still express myself with these instruments, even though these are like different than the instruments I was using yesterday, it's still me. Right, they're just fantastic. Like In Rainbows, if you haven't heard it, is just the greatest record that they've ever produced. I think every track on there is a 10-10 in my estimation. Fantastic. Arcade Fire is also just amazing. Uh, they did the soundtrack, I think, in collaboration with um, some other guy for Her. Have you ever seen the Spike Jones movie Her? That was Arcade Fire doing the soundtrack for them. They are musical. Geniuses, Radiohead and Arcade Fire. Love them both. What what have you pulled specifically from listening to their art and appreciating it and apply it to what you're doing? I like music videos a lot. Radiohead and Arcade Fire both have very visually compelling music videos. Okay. And I think that inspires the experiences that I want to create through the stuff that I make. They make experiences like their albums are full experiences start to finish. And so are their music videos They're They play around with genre and they bend genre to their will. They can kind of treat the genres that they're playing with like silly putty. It's very interesting to see. A lot of the stuff is hard to explain with words because it's so artistic. Right. Very difficult to explain taste in words. <clears throat> but it's there if you go and check out their work. It's unlike anything else right now, I think. It's beautiful. Who, in, who inspired them? Like what, what artists do they draw from? I wish I could tell you that for Arcade Fire and Radiohead because I know a lot more about who inspired Animal Collective than I do those two bands. Okay, tell me about, hold on one second. Sure. I'll be right back. Okay, for sure. Oh, wow. You have Meriwether. Okay. So, wow. <clears throat> so I love vinyl collecting and yeah. I have a pretty, pretty great collection. It's like at a point where I'm, I'm very happy with it. So uh -huh. now I'm just adding pieces to it. And the way I go about it, it's so like serendipitous and spontaneous. Uh -huh. When I'm out and about, typically I'll be like downtown Chicago, I'll go to the Art Institute or just like people watch at, at Millennium Park. And uh, then I'll go to the right. I'll have like a beautiful day. Great day. So then I, I go to the record shop, Reckless Records on yeah. Madison. 
Yeah, yeah. And I just walk around and whatever, whatever vinyl record sticks out to me, that's the one I get for whatever reason, for whatever. Some I have ideas of a few records I would like to put in there and others it's just like, I don't know. It could be anything. So I yeah. went to, I went to the art Institute with a friend and we were going through the American folk art uh, exhibit. And this guy, he's really into Bob Dylan. He's really into just like folk idea and Americana. And I, I asked him, we were, we were talking about cover. I asked him about cover art, like an album artwork. And I said, what's, what's the, what's, what's some of your favorite ones? And you mentioned animal collective. Uh, I don't even know the name of it. Meriwether so, post pavilion. What is it? Meriwether post pavilion. So that's, that's the one. And then yeah. I went on Google and I looked at the album uh -huh. and I was like, Oh, interesting. That is because I like psychedelic kind of looking stuff. Uh -huh. And so then after that day, we had a beautiful day together and uh, went to the record store. And then what's the first record that stands out? Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Oh, <laughs> it's the same. It's this animal collective. Yeah, and, that's, that's and so I'm like, well, I have to I have to get this one. That's the in one particular. Yep. And this one is. Did you hear it? Did you listen to it? Yeah, so I listened to it and it's it's pretty yep. out there. It's pretty uh, experimental oh, or I different than what I'm used to hearing. So I that, love that's so funny you would say that. That's actually their most accessible album. That's like their really pop. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the album that kind of put them on the mainstream map before wow. then. They were just really popular with hipsters from Baltimore and people in the noise rock scene. And their early their stuff all before that, the album that came out before that was this one I'm holding right now. That's why I love vinyls because you get the art. Yeah. Is Strawberry Jam. So Strawberry Jam was the record that came out uh, two years before Meriwether Post Pavilion. Completely okay. different record compared to MPP. This one's a lot more, uh, it sounds like a desert. And I know that I'm, I know so much animal collective lore. It's absurd. They recorded this in a desert in Arizona. And so it's very much inspired by desert sounds. And it sounds, um, there's more guitar, there's more screaming. There's AB Terror yeah. is a, a vocalist who does a lot of growls and screeches. It's a very much more emotional album compared to MPP. So yeah, that's why I love these bands because they all sound completely different. But that's so funny that that would be the first record you you find after saying, oh, Mary by the Post Pavilion. It's... Uh, yeah, I love that record, by the way. Brother Sport, In the Flowers. It's yeah. all amazing stuff. Tell me more about Animal Collective. I would love to. I could talk about them for four hours. Yeah, so I got into them when I was in high school. My buddy Tommy at the time told me, hey, you should get an Animal Collective. And I think I listened to, um, I think their first record that I ever listened to was, I think it was actually Meriwether Post Pavilion. And I was like, you know, this is all right. It didn't really click for me. And then I just kind of kept listening to their albums, their, their kind of stuff from the 2009 era. And then I just started listening to more and more and more of it. And then the next thing I know, they're my favorite band and ever. I was I was obsessed with Animal Collective when I was. In well, I thought Radiohead and Arcade Fire are your favorite bands. They're also my favorite. Well, they're all three. All three of them are amazing. Oh, I, okay. A favorite son. Animal Collective was like my firstborn son, right? And like okay. Radiohead and and Arcade Fire, like the children I had afterwards. But I don't tell them that yeah. my favorite is the first firstborn. They don't. They don't have to know, but you can know because they're not in the room right now. And so, um. 
I know way too much about Animal Collective. It's almost embarrassing. But Strawberry Wait, Jam. So they're from Baltimore? They're from Baltimore. They're from Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Deacon, Panda Bear, Geologist, and Avi Terror are the names of the four band members. Strawberry Jam is my favorite record of theirs. But before MPP came out, I don't know if you've ever heard their old stuff, but it's much more acoustic and noisy and way more experimental than MPP. Calling MPP experimental is like, that's like vanilla. <laughs> It's like the OK Boomer album for, for Animal Collective fans. Like, oh, I love Animal Collective. Wow. OK Boomer. Holindigan, which is this record they put out in like 2003, is so much more abstract and ambient and noisy and chaotic. And their very first record, Spirit They're Gone, Spirit They Vanished, is nothing. It was just A.V. Terran Panda Bear, which is them two playing on that record, is absolutely nothing at all compared to their newer stuff it's like this is barely music but it's actually a very beautiful album it's i've seen them live um twice i saw them on their painting with tour and their sung tongs tour sung tongs was this uh, acoustic record they did in 2004 that they played live again in its entirety which was beautiful um what else do you want to know about them i know uh, what's what's their astrological their... signs <laughs> What's their creative process like? Yeah, so they're so Panda Bear lives in Singapore. So the guy's name is Panda Bear. I know like nothing about Animal Collective other than I now have this vinyl record. So Panda Bear showed up on that one Daft Punk album, uh, their last album, um, the one with Pharrell on it. He did this song like Oh sure. Panda Bear, yeah, Panda Bear was on that record, and uh, he lives in uh, Portugal. And A.V. Tier lives in L.A. and Deacon's like somewhere, um, Baltimore. They're all over the country. They're all over the world, yeah. basically. And they collaborate by sending each other sound files if they're like living abroad. And then they get in the studio in some central location. They just jam out. And the songs that they jam out end up, it's kind of like Grateful Dead. They'll play live uh -huh. the songs that they're working on. And then if the audience reacts in a particular way, they're like, oh, you know what? That's going on the record because the audience really likes that. So they'll test out their stuff live. They're like validating their ideas, sort of like an entrepreneur does. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll play a lot of uh, stuff live and then that'll go on the record. But Animal Collective is like serious Animal Collective fans are so into the hidden gems of their work. There's a huge back catalog of unreleased songs and songs that didn't make it into like the north american version oh did you hear this song like i went to an animal collective concert and i was with this posse of of diehard anko fans and it's like have you ever heard of sponge anko fans are nerds when it comes to their unreleased tracks i was at an anko concert i was with this group of other diehard anko fans and we're all sharing like oh have you ever heard of this one unreleased song that didn't get on the record in America and they played it live one time and it has 10 views on YouTube and it's called Sponge Luke. No, I haven't heard of that song. I thought I've heard of every unreleased Animal Collective song. We are nerds for the unreleased Anco deep cuts, but their creative process is so wild in that they have a huge catalog of different experimentations with their sounds that they would perform for their audiences um in in different tours that they didn't really know were being recorded and fans will upload them to the internet and they're the very they're they're experimental in a good way i know experimental sounds like hipster trash and like oh i'm a sophisticated experimental artist 
but they use experimentation to discover where their taste is leading them. Okay. Avitar has this quote that goes something like, he's basically saying that the best way to just be inspired is to just use what comes naturally. If, if he starts jamming out and it's like the first couple of notes that he's playing, that's like he, he's saying that like what's coming to him naturally as he's playing is probably what should go into the song instead of trying to overthink things and over overwrite really? and then trying to. So it's more like intuitive. Up. Their sound has always kind of had a kind of rough, unfinished feel to it. Okay. Mary Mother Post Pavilion is the most polished of the of the of their albums production wise everything else kind of sounds like almost unfinished if that makes sense but yeah i'm a huge anco nerd that i've always been so do you think that they pull inspiration from grateful dead oh absolutely they pull inspiration from grateful dead and a band called pavement and yeah they're big pavement fans they were a big um kind of indie grunge band in the late 90s stephen malcolmus and they pull inspiration from, they've also featured, well, they use a lot of found sounds. They pull sounds from the environment. They've pulled sounds from like forests and oceans. There's a band member called nicknamed uh, geologist and they pull sounds from uh, like rocks and stones and things crashing on top of each other. So how they do they use... specifically record that? Do you know? Yeah, with uh, microphones that they pull into field recordings, they take microphones and with big fluffy things covering them to protect the mic, and they'll record sounds from nature and they'll use they'll they'll run it through tape loops and really distort the sounds so that they sound like something entirely different. But you don't really know that it's a sound from a waterfall crashing until you watch the behind the scenes videos that they have. They did a record um, recently where. They were playing in an Amazon rainforest. And again, this sounds so like hipster and like hippie, but it's actually quite accessible. Like my mom likes animal collection. I got my mom into, into them. But the, yeah, that's their recording process. They, so they, they go ahead. So they'll go to these natural spots and they'll shoot yeah. video and record. Interesting. And they'll bring that into their live performances as well by triggering those samples on a little touchpad drum machine thing that plays the samples back again. But those samples were recorded in the forest. And the, so their whole music is a texture. They have texture to their mm. music. And they teach you to think about texture and music. All of my favorite bands convey texture. But it's weird to think of texture music because it's something that you hear sonically. But the sonic texture of their of every one of their albums changes. And so Meriwether Post Pavilion's texture is kind of clean and polished. And then Strawberry Jams is like falling face first into a cactus and like feels. They've got this album called Feels, which feels like you're in the middle of a heartbreak. But that's the texture to their songs that they that they consider. And Radiohead does this too. Arcade Fire does this. It's beyond you, just playing guitar. Your Radiohead and Arcade Fire uh, love makes a lot more sense now. Really? Yeah. Like just because yeah. uh, I don't really listen to Radiohead or Arcade Fire. I like I like some of their stuff, but it just I just it's not my thing. But the way you explained it and you love the texture and that yeah. every album has a different texture. Something I think about with Radiohead is like, it's the sound is so 
different. It's so vivid in a way. Like it's very, um, I don't want to overuse the word experimental, but it, sure. it sounds like they're just creating sounds and putting them together and seeing like what happens. It's like almost like a spontaneous kind of journey in a way. It's like almost like there's no destination. They're just like making art. Yeah. So there's another group that I really like called Boards of Canada. They're okay. from Scotland, I'm sure. And they also do the same thing that Animal Collective does, which is to take found sound and make a new sound out of samples from nature. And they overlap this with distortion and tape loops and pedals and all that. And that creates the texture in the music. But there's really something to be said for how you listen to music because some people listen to it for the lyrics and for the songwriting and that's fine i'm not going to say that one way of listening to music is better than another way because that makes me sound like a pretentious asshole but there are bands that think about music in a way that most people just don't consider like the feeling of a song the feeling of an entire album which shapes the way you feel when you listen to it and your mood and that actually shapes yeah. like how you feel as you listen to the music and that's the texture part. It's like the texture of the emotions that you're feeling. Music is such a weird thing because a lot of it is also mathematical. Like, I don't think anybody understands music at all. It's so mysterious. Like, I'm only telling you my lived experience of music. I'm not some music. I don't know anything. I can't play. I don't know how to play music. Yeah. I just like listening to the songs and bands that I like because it does something to my brain chemistry that I cannot explain to you. I can only explain it artistically or poetically or or in a way that makes me sound like a crazy person. But I have no idea what's going on with the actual mechanisms behind the combination of sounds and the beats and the rhythms and why it evokes me in such a way. All I know is that it does. Yeah, <laughs> music is so crazy. It's mis very mysterious and we've had it forever. We've had it for centuries and it was one of the first ways by which we communicated with each other. Yeah, it's quite a journey. What What are the lyrics like? What's the writing like in Animal Collective? So AP Tear is Okay, so there's two songwriters in, in Animal Collective, A.B. Tear and Noah Lennox, uh, also goes by Panda Bear. Um, the songwriting between the two of them varies. Panda Bear writes more like feel-good, vibey sounds, uh, lyrics, and I don't mean that in a okay. bad way because it sounds like a little bit less... Um, Substantial or something. Sophisticated than what, what A.B. Tear writes about, but... I'm a big fan of Panda Bear's solo record, um, Perfect uh, Person Pitch. He's 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 the drummer of, of Animal Collective, but he also wears many hats. He'll do a lot of the sampling and he'll do a lot of the production and he'll also write songs. Meriwether Post Pavilion, the main guy from Animal Collective, A.B. Tear, has said that was mostly a Panda Bear album. So the feel-good Beach Boys inspiration behind um, MPP is actually coming from Panda Bear. Beach Boys is also a big inspiration on Animal Collective, by the way. They mm, were a big inspiration on, on Meriwether Post Pavilion. It'll make much more sense now that I've told you that. A lot of the structure and the chorus lines of Meriwether Post Pavilion are inspired by Beach Boys. So A.B. Tear writes lyrics that are more like, I don't want to say angsty, but more emotional. 
more packed with raw kind of heartbreak and soulful chaos and panda bear is more mellow i suppose more grounded more i just want to um walk out in the light drizzle and get high there's a line from the song he has in strawberry jam where he's talking about like he just wants to walk in the in the light rain and just like smoke a blunt and just kind of chill and kind of let the stress of the day dissipate and that's kind of what you get from panda bear deacon which is kind of like the the oddball member of animal collective because there's like four records where he doesn't appear on any of them and like is he really a real member of animal collective mm -hmm. but he's a i think he's a very good songwriter because he writes about more spiritual things and more like he kind of writes about like meditation and being in your soul and being okay with the feelings that you're experiencing he has this album called um it was his first solo record the name escapes me right now but that's what he writes about so the personality of the main of the songwriters kind of gets okay through. so you have deacon who's the more spiritual one yeah deacon's the more spiritual one avi is the more like emotional one and then panda bear is the more vibey one i guess i don't know panda bear is hard to put into one word more grounded more he's like the buddy you would want to like chill out with a beer too okay kind of more into friendship i guess but they're all great songwriters in their own right what do you think we've seen this progression we're talking about music now it first starts with maybe singing and playing instruments in your local region thousands of years ago and then the 20th century with the technology, we're infusing technology and we're able to record things and press it onto vinyl. So now other people can play it rather than during like a classical time where you compose and you wrote it and then that writing other musicians could perform it because they're reading it. And now we're recording sounds out in nature and then infusing them into like editing what is what is the future of music a hundred years from now look like like how are people creating music a hundred years from now there's a great okay so there's a show called look around you okay Have you ever heard of it no there's a show called look around you it's a show created by i think it was um peter it's Ooh, uh, say that again peter peter Serenif peter Serenifowicz. okay Okay, so Peter Serenifowicz did the show called Look Around You. And there's a, a scene in Look Around You where it's like the future of music. <laughs> and it's like the really? song was like, Makademu, 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 Demu, Demu. And they're trying to like figure out what the sound of music is going to be like in the year 2000. And it's okay. the examples of it are just extremely ridiculous. And I'm, I'll send it to you. And I think that is the example of what music is going to sound like a hundred years from now i have no idea it's going to blow our minds it's going to just be completely uh I, I don't know maybe we'll just have the same thing that we have today trap house and uh electronic music and uh rap. i don't know i feel like <laughs> so one of my favorite books is but what if we're wrong by chuck klosterman uh -huh. and he he has this idea, he has this question really of like, the book is based on thinking about the present as if it were the past. 
Yeah. And we think we're so certain right now, but so did like people in 1910 and, and so forth and so forth. So he asked the idea of like how rock music will be remembered 500 years from now. Whoa. And will rock music, when we think of say classical music, we only remember like three names. So as we grow farther, we're only going to remember singular names in history. And what will it be? What will rock music be remembered as? Would it be like Bob Dylan? And it was about this, like what you were actually saying, or would it be more like Elvis and like big hair and sex and rock and roll type of thing? Yeah. yeah. Um, so he has that idea and he, he's wondering if, however they're learning in classrooms or whatever, rock music is just like this footnote and they know like nothing about rock music at all. And they'll play like a sample of it. And it's interesting to think about how our, our more like interactions with each other globally, you know, say you have like, you know, in England, they only have like certain instruments, but then Africa and the Caribbean, they're using just like different things. So now all these sounds start blending together and in a more like globalized world, all these sounds are coming together. And then our technology of just like editing and sampling and recording, all of them are merging together. I wonder if there's going to be like technology in the future where we can like feel sound waves or, and then it'll, I have no idea. I feel like everything is so possible right now <laughs> I, I have no we're idea gonna, you mean we're not going to run out of music to play there's people who think that we're going to run there's out just of, gonna we're gonna be more, more, more. we're going to run out almost, of music to play every note's going to ever be every combination of notes is going to be written every combination of words is going to be written somehow yeah. there's going to be no more music but how will we experience power. it that's what i'm curious how will, do you think the experience of music is going to change well like what if a, a robot and more and more like yeah music is becoming more accessible anybody can record and then put something on spotify and that can resonate with people it's also hard as hell to make music it's so hard but what if people like everybody collaborates i don't know like it's just so it's so interesting how there's it used to be like record companies would control what people listen to but now if people are finding music and sounds in their own ways how does that shape music and people's experiences i'm just thinking well, it's almost like spotify is taking the place of the record labels because it is yeah music through spotify and i just pay a monthly subscription and it's almost like the same bands that would be promoted by other record labels because like i said earlier it's so hard to make music sound good like yeah. we think music is such an easy endeavor because look at all these great bands. There's only a few great bands compared to all of the thousands, hundreds of thousands of mediocre musicians. And I'm not saying that to be rude. I'm saying that as a testament to how yeah. difficult it is to make good music. It's just very, very difficult to make music that sounds good. Most of the music sucks. And again, I don't mean I can't make good music. If I were to play guitar or sing, it would be terrible. Just because I listen to good bands doesn't mean I can play well. I have, I can't, I can't. I just, I suck at right. it. It's hard. Do you think, in general, do you think if something is great, 
it will find a way to be discovered no matter what. If it's, it's so great, it'll just be discovered. I don't know. There's a lot of sound like such a hipster saying this, but there's a lot of bands that I like that I think are fantastic that nobody knows. <laughs> there's a band called Metro Ongen. They're from Japan. They're my favorite band right now from Japan. And they've been around since like 2007 and they still haven't had a radio hit. They still haven't made it big. And I own one of their shirts. I retweet their stuff all the time. I want to put them on the map. I want to see them live one day. I think they're incredible. And the reason they're a little bit unpopular in Japan is because their sound, Japan, Japanese rock has more of an upbeat vibe to it. Metro Ongen plays around with shoegaze and grunge harmonies than they do more traditional fast paced rock music that you would hear out of Japan. But their stuff also kind of does lean into that category from time to time. But most of it is a little bit more somber and melancholic. But I think that's what makes them so awesome because they play around with that original sound. But they're like unknown compared to Asian Kung Fu Generation yeah, and the yeah. Pillows and these other bands from Japan that are that have massive audiences that play arenas. But Metro Ongen is fantastic. They are amazing. But nobody knows them except for me. I'm the only one who listens to them. But I think they're great. But why aren't they spreading? I don't know. So if what, they were so good, then why would they spread? I don't know. But yeah. So that's the question. Is like music is so subjective yeah, that yeah. great to one person sounds different sounds different to somebody else it's like so how does it's weird it's like music is becoming more and more personalized in a way where you can find whatever resonates with you somehow i don't right. know yeah i i sometimes want to say certain things in music are objective like certain notes might be certain combinations of sounds and notes and harmonies might be objectively good and that no matter who you are it'll tingle something in your brain and satisfy yeah. something but then if that were true then every band in the world who wanted to make it big would just abuse those just do that like that use that right, formula. Right, right. yeah just do that because everybody likes that but that's not what we see yeah so i don't know if that's it's probably not true that there are certain things in well in music that are objectively good because people aren't abusing them all the time maybe some bands do i don't know but yeah it's a very mysterious thing music it got me you know nietzsche had this quote that goes uh life without music would be a mistake Ooh, that's a good one nietzsche, like uh, you know you've got some somber depressed fuck as nietzsche he liked music what kind of music did you like Rag, uh, he was a big fan of Wagner, Richard Wagner, who was a composer, I think, from uh, Germany at the time. And then he kind of broke up with him in some ways. I think uh, it's also Nietzsche. He kind of he was too intelligent for his own good. What what happened with him? So he had that like nervous uh, breakdown, right? When he was like forty four. Yeah, yeah, forty four. The ripe old age of the early 40s he uh, like how did that happen like what led to that like what i don't know the exact causation behind his descent into madness but he did spend the last x amount of years uh descending into madness he died insane he tried to rescue a horse from being flogged out in the middle of some street and that like they kind of i think they caught him and they thought he was like a crazy person well he kind of i think he was at the time 
insane. So how does, how does a brilliant mind like that? How does it go mad? He, well, a level of intelligence like that only comes around. Well, you think about all of the people who have ever lived ever. And then you think of how many Nietzsche's there were one. How rare is that? And so there might be some connection between his level of intelligence and, well, I think there is a connection between his level of intelligence and his ability to connect with the world and kind of be happy. I think he really struggled to be, uh, to be happy. He, his love life was kind of strange. He grew up in an all-female household if i remember correctly i'm not an expert on the biography of nietzsche really i'm not mm. but i only know some sur surface level trivia facts but he um i think he was just too smart for his own britches too smart for his own intelligence but the things that he wrote were are very very valuable to consider and to ponder and to expose yourself to because i think it's a really good thing to expose yourself to the thinking of somebody who is one in a trillion because how many other times is a Nietzsche going to be born probably never but when you become so intelligent as Nietzsche was it's very difficult to relate to the world and it's very difficult for the world to relate to you and so he might have had a problem or many problems kind of this is keeping himself psychologically fortified and and happy i don't know if happy is even the right word but yeah he was very um he was a sad case nietzsche he really was but that's kind of what happens like because there's a little bit of a danger i think to glorifying uber intelligent people like man if only i had an iq of 200 well there's a danger in glorifying really there's, intelligent people like that. I think there's a danger in glorifying uber intelligent people because you might think, well, my life would be so much better if I had an IQ of 200 or if I was as smart and brilliant as Nietzsche. Okay, well, then it's going to be very, very difficult for you to relate emotionally with other people. Whether or not EQ is a thing that exists, we don't have to get into that debate right now, but it, it is going to be very difficult for you to empathize and to kind of stay still and to not want to kill yourself and to because highly intelligent people, it's very easy for them to perceive what the world could be if everybody else tried to be like like Nietzsche had the idea of a Superman, right? The transcendent morality. If you could transcend all morals, you'd be able to accomplish anything you want in your life that is sort of an example of the danger of being so intelligent like oh man the world would be so much better if everybody kind of stopped doing all of these banal things and distracting themselves with memes and social media and twitter nietzsche would probably find it a lot harder to survive today because he'd have a lot more of a reason to be kind of i don't want to call him a cynic i don't think he was cynical mm -hmm. but intelligent people highly highly intelligent people like 0.001% of the entire population it's very difficult for them to not see things in such a way like living itself is painful because look at all these normies going about their normie life not trying to do intellectual things and furthering the progress of humanity or doing things that are more intellectually and spiritually more meaningful that can kind of weigh down on highly highly intellectual people's level of happiness 
And what are we supposed to do with that? I'm not sure, but there is a danger into thinking that highly intelligent people just have it all figured out for themselves. It can be a very unhappy existence. And so I don't think it's really all that appropriate to say like, oh, you know, the common everyday person who isn't reading Nietzsche is like, I'm above that. Or, you know, you work as a janitor, you don't know anything, you know, you're useless just because you don't read all these pompous books. There's incredible, you know, everybody has value, you know, human life is such a precious and sacred thing. Just because you're not reading Nietzsche, you're not some uber pompous academic intellectual doesn't mean that you don't have anything valuable for other people. There's a difference between wisdom and intelligence. You know, I've I used to work at a grocery store and I, I met some very wise and humble people who were good to listen to and that, you know, gave me some pretty good advice and it didn't come from Frederick Nietzsche. I just like reading Nietzsche because I like kind of realizing how dumb I am and that's why I read books <laughs> and like, oh, look at this, this intelligent yeah. person. Do you know much about, uh, I think his name is Soren Kiersgaard? I, I don't. I haven't read much of his work. I've only read like through the grapevine of other quotes that authors have pulled from him, but okay. I know he's a philosopher, but I haven't actually read him now. Okay. Yeah. Everybody has something valuable to offer the world. And it's important to see that in people, people that don't think that are closing themselves off to value. Cause you can, or they you try can... To, yeah. Or they try to pull, successful people down and successful doesn't even have to be like jeff bezos successful successful yeah. could just be the mid-level manager that's that you're working for oh i hate this person there's more successful than me like, it turns into like this toxic cynical resentment and that can be very dangerous because when you start to hate yourself and when you think that you're not valuable mm -hmm. then you'll look at other people who have more of a modicum of success in their lives and you think well they shouldn't have that because i don't have it life is unfair i want to take that away from other people and that's very toxic that's very dangerous so how do we how do we uh reduce that type of toxicity well i think it starts with asking yourself or realizing that you don't need a massive excess amount of cash or followers or subscribers to posit yourself as successful. I'm stealing this idea from a guy named Michael Malice, whose work I really enjoy, who says like, even if you have a podcast that has 10 listeners, that's not a failure. If 10 people are coming back to your podcast every week and they enjoy it, good. That's no, there's no failure in that. But the, it's the danger in like wanting more, right? Like, oh, I have a hundred followers now. I could have 105. Look at that. Yeah. They have 105 yeah, yeah. followers. Huh. This I'm is not... such, isn't this such a like new problem of like 21st century? Everybody's comparing followers and stuff on social media when like 20 years ago, there was none of this. Yeah. Well, we've, it's like we've outsourced the mechanisms by which we measure measure our spiritual happiness to big tech companies hey we're gonna give you this thing called follower count and you're gonna yeah. base your happiness off of it and we just let that happen to ourselves without even realizing that it was happening that's insane and i've done it <laughs> nobody's safe from it everybody's done it <laughs> and yes it is it is a i think a new 
uh, innovation in the worst sense possible. But it's very strange because I do rely on social media, like, and you do. And I think social yeah. media is a very powerful tool. It is, and I yeah. think it's a mistake to get cynical about it, though it's very easy to get cynical about it because it's given people a lot of good. And I've met some incredibly, I mean, I've met you through social media. Yeah. But we're, we're kind of playing the game within the game. We want to play the yeah. game of having a good long-term relationship, you and I, and treating each other with respect and having these great conversations. Like, I don't ever get the sense from you, Rich, that you're trying to extract something out of me as a transaction. And mm. I don't ever want to do the same for you because you and I are good friends, like to, to the extent that we've known each other for as long as we've known each other. But there are a lot of people, I think, who play like the numbers game and the social media algorithm mm. hacking and how to get the most out of like follower counts. And I have more than I did yesterday. And it's all a numbers game. Yeah. That is a depressing game to play, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I got two two more things to ask you. Okay. Sure. You can. Yeah. I'm enjoying this. I was going to. I, what I wanted to do theoretically in my head was I was going to read Crime and Punishment by, by Dobsieski. Okay, I yeah. think I butchered the name. And then have you on, because I know like you read, you've read that book and then you also read a lot of his other works and then pick your brain. But uh, if I remove this Animal Collective vinyl, you'll see it's like, it's still in the queue right uh -huh. here. Uh -huh. You haven't read it. So uh, if you can enlighten me a little bit about, uh, what you think of Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky? Yes. I read Notes from the Underground. That's the only book I've read from it. Okay. Great book. Yeah. Yeah. What, why it seems like you kind of gravitate towards his writing. I've always gravitated towards the psychological. So I'm a big anime fan, yeah. as you know, and my favorite anime has always been around uh, by, by a director named Satoshi Kon. Satoshi okay. Kon directed a, a movie called um, Paprika and another movie called Millennium Actress and a movie called um, Perfect Blue. All of these have psychological themes. And he also okay. directed a show, a 13 episode series called um, Paranoia Agent, which has psychological themes. And I got into this, his stuff when I was like 15. So I've always been drawn to the psychological aspect, the human nature side of, of fiction. Mm -hmm. And so Dostoevsky, is like that he he's not a psychologist he never was a trained psychologist and so he's a great example i think of oh you know stay in your lane you know you're not a psychologist. yeah yeah you write about psychology you read crime and punishment and it is an expose of the of what happens to a soul who believes that they can get away with murder and the consequences of that the psychological consequences of what happens to your conscience when you trick yourself into thinking that you're going to get away with a crime oh well there's no such thing as morality or like you, you can play these psychological games on yourself which you mm -hmm. see in crime and punishment i'm not going to spoil the book by the way but the whole gist of the book is well the main character tries to convince himself that he can get away with murder. And the whole entire book is what happens afterwards. And that's what you get out of a crime and punishment. And I think it's a very useful read for people who are teetering on the edge of nihilism, who think like, who might be taking Nietzsche's Superman idea a bit too seriously, which is what the Nazis did by transcending all morals. Therefore, everything is permitted to use a phrase that Dostoevsky uses in another one of his novels, The Brothers Karamazov, if everything is permitted, then all hell breaks loose and we can just go commit murders because, you know, morality is this 
transcendent like th this thing that we can transcend and we don't need the, the psychological chains tying ourselves to morality we can do whatever we want and then consciousness is going to come in and say no 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 there's a reason why i exist and it's to keep you really alive and to kind of impose order on your world and Dostoevsky explores the, the relationship between morality and conscious consciousness itself and orthodox Christian ideas. And what he'll do is he'll strongman arguments in the flesh of his characters. So, and he'll strongman arguments that he disagrees with. And what you do in a good debate is to try to strongman the idea that you're arguing arguing against so you don't dilute the idea and strawman it, which is the opposite of steel manning is actually the proper word, not strongman. Wait, what are all these words? What, what all these words be? What's up? The like straw man, steel man, what does that mean? Uh, to steel man something means to actually give as much credit as you possibly can to the argument on the other side. So it's okay. like, let's say you, Rich, say, you know, argument A, and I disagree with that. What I want to do if I want to have a productive debate is try to understand your point of view as, as strongly as I can and to not dilute your argument. I want to make it as strong as I possibly can, which will force me to increase the level of my argument, the strength of my argument, instead of straw manning it. By it seems like a good approach. Good approach, yeah, right? and that's what Dostoevsky will do with his characters. Okay. So he does this in Brothers Karamazov. He'll he'll steel man the argument against faith and the Christian faith and the Christian Orthodox faith through a character in, in the book, and then he'll straw man um, his argument for believing in God in the guise of a character. Huxley did this as well. Huxley, all of dude, Huxley's my guy. I, I, uh. I brought um, Perennial Philosophy. Where is this book? With me to oh, Miami. So I, I took Perennial Philosophy with me to Miami. Yeah. I'm reading in Miami. I can only read like three pages of it at a time because I have to like step back. and like, what did I just <laughs> read? And then, yeah. So that led me to Eyeless in Gaza. And then I've, I've listened to, I've been on Wikipedia, like looking him up, listening to podcast episodes about his biography. Uh -huh. Fascinating person. Yeah, I did a lot of LSD. <laughs> but he didn't do it till he was like 55, right? It's great. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so well, that not he didn't me. do it till he was 55 because un unearned wisdom, right? He warned about taking LSD and psilocybin um, not seriously enough because you have one or two bad trips and that's really going to fuck you up psychologically. So he treated it with respect. But what, okay. what all this Huxley and Dostoevsky did similarly was philosophical literature instead of having this like it's a little bit different than what Nietzsche did though Nietzsche did the same thing too with Zarathustra but they meditated on philosophical and spiritual like psychological ideas those two words are I think interchangeable um through characters and through fiction so that way they're a little bit more palatable for most people mm -hmm. so you think oh you know the masses shouldn't have philosophy because they don't understand they're not smart enough for philosophy i think that idea is very toxic i think it's bullshit. like just because you're not an academic doesn't mean you can't appreciate philosophy and deep ideas i yeah. like, i don't see myself as some pompous academic i just want to understand myself on a deeper level i have this quote that goes um, i'm quoting myself how narcissistic is that a great work of literature knows more about you than you do Ooh. So I read, that brings me to this one. Uh, I'm reading, 
working class mystic. That's a great name. <laughs> right. Uh, spiritual biography of George Harrison. Um, okay. Huge Beatles fan. And yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. and so I, I was I, the other day I read uh, his experience taking LSD for the first time. Mm. So they were with it was John, John and George and uh, Cynthia Lennon and then Patty. And they were over at their dentist's house. So their dentist was like a dentist, but he was so like fun that he had all these rock star friends yeah. so that uh, they had coffee and there's like four sugar cubes on the mantle, the fireplace mantle. And he, he spiked them into the coffee and then they were about to go out to the club. And uh -huh. he's like, no, we can't go anywhere. So then at first John was the only one who knew about LSD of the Beatles. And then he was furious that, which rightly so like you, take an LSD and you don't even right you know like and then George they were they were having like a really bad experience then George they went to the club and they met up with Ringo and Mick Jagger and then George started seeing everything in molecules and atoms oh, yeah. yeah and he he would see a tree and he would see the sap running through it and then it was that experience that he knew in his mind that there was God and then ever since he's been like he went on this spiritual journey to find it. And I was thinking of you, because I remember you were reading, uh, not about the LSD, but the, the Bhagavad Vita, yeah. that book. I remember you mentioned it like a while ago. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I need to read it again. I don't what, what did you think whole, of that I remember, book? I remember very, I remember enjoying it because I was going into it thinking that it would be a little bit um, impenetrable. Because there's a lot of yeah. ancient wisdom out there that's very difficult to get your head under, but it was very readable. I don't know was if it, it was because of the trends. Oh, yeah, I found it very readable, very clear, very clearly written. Yeah, which is why I recommend yeah. it highly. I think, yeah, Dostoevsky's work is kind of like that, too. I think it's very readable, but that's like the, the surprise of it was, that, you know, I could get my head around this. An yeah. adult like me could understand this. Yeah, I love books where... If, if you read a book that resonates with you, you can extract like five more books from it. Hmm. So I'm reading the working class mystic. And then it leads me to like, now I got this Raja yoga. And like I bought Tibetan book of the dead, like all these different books and just have it accessible. Like in my, I'm building up this library here. So I can see that. Yeah, yeah, that's what a book does. You finish reading a book and then now you have this new inkling as to what you want to read next based on what you just read. And you yeah. didn't know what you wanted to read next before you started reading that book you right. just finished. And now you have more of a sense of that. And like, that's the question of like, well, what should I read first? Like, do you have five books that I should read? No, I don't. Because I don't know what you're going to be interested in. Exactly. One of exactly. them. Yeah. I have no idea. You just got to follow your curiosity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rec follow your curiosity. Like, I do think that there's a lot of books that everybody should read, like Search for Meaning and Gulag Archipelago and like Huxley and all that. But it's very hard for me to say that, like, oh, I'm going to go door to door and say, you need to read this right yeah. now. <laughs> Who am I to say that? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you've been you've been doing a lot of different things. You've been talking to a lot of awesome people. What's a common thread you see with everybody you're talking to that they're crazy enough to want to sit down with me for two hours i think is, <laughs> is one common thing that's well, certainly it's accurate well the i'm doing a 
Well, one thing I've learned, I guess, recently is how cool it is to have a disagreement with somebody and that for that disagreement to not disintegrate the entire friendship you have with them. I think that's a really beautiful thing. I don't think everybody has to be friends with everybody who agrees with them. I think that's a very boring life. Yeah. I think um, common threads. Okay, yeah. So one thing that I've realized the value of is that a friendship gets stronger, I think, when you have a disagreement and that disagreement doesn't completely disintegrate the friendship. Instead of trying to find friends who completely agree with everything you say, which is a very boring yeah. uh, litmus test for a friendship, the true litmus test of a good companionship in life is, oh, well, you see things differently than I do. And thank God for that. That means I'm not friends with total NPCs or I'm not an NPC <laughs> and I'm trying to just see things the way everybody else does. Because look, we all come into this life, we, we all experience life completely differently than everybody else. Therefore, we all have different views of things, right? Yeah. And so that's, I think, a beautiful example of the true diversity of human experience. And so I can have a friend disagree with me on something and it's actually something quite close to home and it's like closely tied to my worldview and he sees things a little bit differently, but I can still call him a friend because he's not treating me like an ass just because I see things differently. Yeah. And a lot of this divide that we see today, I don't know necessarily if it's caused by the political polarization or quote unquote the media or just our tendency to take our views and thoughts and opinions a little bit more seriously than we should be doing. Because mm. it's very easy for us to think like, well, I hold these ideas and values to be sacred. And if anybody disagrees with them, they like go to hell. Yeah. And I think that's a really unbeautiful, for lack of a better word, way to live. I kind of light up when I hear disagreements from my friends. It's like, oh, thank God you don't see this the way I do. Now we can <laughs> kind of play around with like our ideas and kind of try to clarify our arguments and kind of have yeah. like an intellectual game in some way. I think it's very fun. But not everything has to be about the political and not everything has to be about like cultural disagreements or what have you. But if it ever comes to those situations, I think celebrate them because I have I tweeted about this earlier. If communication is so sacred, then a disagreement should be treated like the Olympics. Yeah. Like that's that's go time. How are you going to yeah. handle that? Are you going to let yeah. it disintegrate the, and set fire to this four, five, six-year relationship you've been building up with this person? That's all going to go away <laughs> because you thought Trump shouldn't be in office. Like real that that's the reason, really? Yeah. <laughs> what? Come on. Is this does this friendship mean nothing? Yeah. I think those are wise words to go out on. Thanks for for joining me and and. Uh, we can listen to other people and what they're saying and uh, live my th life more beautifully. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, dude, and taking uh, taking the time to do this. It is always, I want, okay, am I, are we still recording? Yeah. Okay. I want everybody to know that Rich wrote me a handwritten letter, took the time out of his busy life to write <laughs> me a handwritten letter, which is, I think, incredibly generous. Incre so generous. Like, I couldn't even do that. I've been, I'm such a millennial. I haven't been able to pull myself out of the constant stream of information on social media to carve out time to write a tailored handwritten letter to Rich Hebron about why I appreciate him as a friend and why he is, I cherish him so much in my life. I think just doing that shows a lot of 
just the depth of your humanity, I think, is bottomless as far as I'm concerned. So I just want people to know that you are a cherished friend of mine and that if you really want to make somebody's day, then don't just send a text. Don't just call them. I mean, those things are fine. You know, a phone call and a text saying, hey, like I'm thinking about you. That's great. But test yourself to see if you can't write a handwritten letter and send them out to them and say, you know, I'm I'm like really appreciative of the fact that you're alive. So thank you again for that. I wanted people to know that you did that and I appreciate it tremendously. So thank of you. Of course. Uh, now, I hope hope everybody else is not expecting a letter. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to send all of you guys. My, my hand is going to hurt. How's your addresses? <laughs> I, I just, uh, I find it very valuable to pull from ideas that have been around for a very long time and just do the opposite of what everybody else is doing. Yeah. So, how can I find meaning that way? Just exploring different ideas and uh, combining them. Like we talked about earlier, nothing is really original. So just look around, yeah. see what has been created what has happened and just you know you know how many people read it. you know how many people read that handwritten letter one is that a failure no because it made me it made me feel good it brought yeah. value to one person's life and it was me it ties back into the whole oh well, my youtube channel only has 10 views yeah. oh, 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 oh. that's a great analogy yeah <laughs> one person that piece of content was seen by one person it was just me it's not a yeah. failure that's true well, I, I thank you again for coming on. It was so much fun. Always great talking with you. Absolutely, man. Love to be here. Thanks for listening to Rich Conversations. Again, you can follow Paul at Paul underscore LaCrone. Have an insightful day.